You are listening to the Local Hearted Podcast, episode number 11, with photographer Tim Barnwell. Welcome to the Local Hearted Podcast. I'm Meredith Adler, and I am your host. Join me as we get to know the people who create the wide variety of art in Asheville and in the mountain counties of Western North Carolina. We'll also talk with some of the people who create opportunities for our local artists and help them shine. Hi, this is Meredith, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Local Hearted Podcast. I do have a couple of event announcements before I introduce this week's guest. Please remember that we are in the year 2016, as are these events. Riverview Station in the River Arts District in Asheville will be holding a holiday market on Saturday, December 3rd, from 4 to 8 p.m. The Western North Carolina Plein Air Painters have a group show running presently until January 9th, 2017 at the Mission Hospital AB Tech Conference Center on the Asheville AB Tech campus. My guest today is Asheville photographer Tim Barnwell, whose work you might know from his books, The Face of Appalachia, On Earth's Furrowed Brow, Hands in Harmony, Blue Ridge Vistas, and his newly released Great Smoky Mountain Vistas. When I was getting ready to start this podcast, I decided I wanted to interview artists as well as people who have services for artists. Tim Barnwell came to mind as a great person to interview because his work and career fit on both counts. He is an artist in his own right with his photography And he also provides services to artists in that he does high-quality photography for artists of their work. Because Tim does so many things and has written a number of books, and we touch upon all of them, this is a relatively long interview. I hope you will take the time to listen to all of it. In the first hour, we discuss Tim's books, the process he used in creating them, and his inspirations. Right after the one-hour mark into the interview, we switch to a discussion of Tim's commercial art, which might be of particular interest to artists, including his explanation of why having great professional photos of your work can impact your career and your bottom line. I do want to say I feel like Tim has done quite the service dedicating 25 years in capturing and preserving a slice of history for us through the photography in his books. To quote his website, The face of Appalachia provides a look at how previous generations lived, with seemingly little change, in the decades before modern industry, roads, communication, and technology 
Transform the Country. By documenting this disappearing way of life, Mr. Barnwell has captured the essence, beauty, and rugged character of the rural landscape and its people for this and the future generations. End quote. It is a tremendous honor for me to bring to you this conversation with the highly accomplished photographer, Tim Barnwell. Tim, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I really appreciate it. Well, glad to have you. Uh, you asked me to be here, and uh, look forward to talking with you. Thank you. And by here, we are actually in Tim's studio in Asheville, North Carolina, and this is a photography studio. Is that how you call it? It is, yes. It's full-time photography studio. One of the few left in town anymore, I guess. Uh, a lot of people work out of their homes now and things like that, but uh, I've had this space for about 25 years, and then I was over on Charlotte Street for a few years running photography school back in the 1980s, and then I had a studio that I shared with a friend down on Lexington Avenue for about five or six years before moving over here. Mm-hmm. But this has been home for a long time. It is, yeah. And I can't believe I've been here this long, but as most things, time passes quickly. And you know, yeah. But I've uh, pretty much been able to set it up into standing sets, let's say, so that when people walk in, I'm ready to do whatever they have to photograph. So it cuts down on the time. And that's been a real benefit to be able to do that versus having to set up from scratch you know, oh, yeah. every time like I did in my other studios. So You have uh, enough space here to have different stations. Right. So I have a tabletop setup. I can do large products up to three feet or so. And mm-hmm. then I have a floor set that I can do larger sculptural pieces or full-length portraits or you know things of that nature. Um, so, yes, um, what I'm able to do is, you know, basically within five or ten minutes be set and, and photographing for people and so it's real efficient in that sense. That's great and you are very well known in this area but I'm not sure that people listening know the range of the things that you do and you have a lot of different things that you do. Yeah everybody knows me for one particular thing I guess in some sense. I mean a lot of the arts crafts people know me as a photographer arts and crafts work and uh, other people I'm a black and white fine art photographer or something like that so you know I do a range of things because I enjoy doing so many things I think that's one of the things that photography has offered me is a real variety and Mm -hmm. I enjoy that keeps me sharp and enables me to do different things every day I never know really from one day the next many cases what I'm going to be involved in I'll get a call have to go out on location somewhere and photograph someone. Um, you know, other times I, I do have scheduled uh, jobs planned, and so I have some sense, especially for existing clients, repeat clients, of what they're going to, of the range of what they might bring in or something. But it's always the variety that's interested me and kind of, you know, something I enjoy. Mm-hmm. And so doing book projects on the side, um, it has always been interesting. Uh, I started out working for magazines primarily, uh, kind of editorial work, and uh, have just kind of continued doing that on my own in the book project aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And you're, the books are wonderful, and you're very well known in this area for your books. And I wonder if you would describe how those projects occurred. Well, um, the first book I did was called The Face of Appalachia, and it was portraits from the mountain farm. So it was uh, kind of um, black and white photographs done with a large format 4x5 view camera, 
set up on a tripod, your head under the hood, the image is upside down and backwards, and everything's very mechanical. Um, and I did a lot of photographs uh, in the late 70s up through the mid 80s uh, into the 90s of traditional farm life in this area. I started it as an article for a magazine I was working for called Mountain Living, and um, they wanted me to do, or I suggested an article on traditional mountain life rather than the upper middle class kind of thing that Southern Living and magazines like that typically do. And they said, well, fine, you do it. And I really hadn't intended to do that. I just wanted to take the pictures. So what I end up doing is oral history interviews with the people. And that enabled me to not have to write so much. And I could just quote them on stuff and them tell about their way of life. And then I could do the photographs to go with it. And I really enjoyed doing that. So after the magazine came out and it was a cover story for them, and then again the next year, um, they did another installation. And I just enjoyed it so much I kept doing it. And at the time, I was running... Uh, a photography workshop from 1981 through 1988 called Appalachian Photographic Workshops and we were on Charlotte Street and we had guest instructors from all over the country come in and teach their specialties and they were tops in their fields and fine art or fashion or food or architecture or some aspect of photography so I learned a lot from that got to meet a lot of great people both instructors and participants in the workshops um, but it was mainly on the weekend so on Monday everybody was gone and that was kind of my day off and so I would just you know, realized I needed a project that I could do on my day off that didn't require travel or a lot of money or things that I wasn't going to have for a number of years having started the business. And so that was something I could, could do in a day's drive up here, go find people out working with traditional farming methods like horses and mules and river baptisms and those kinds of things. So really tried to do a whole slice of, of that rural Appalachian farm life. And then follow it up with another book called On Earth for a Brow, which basically was the same geographic kind of area, but it took it more as a seasonal thing. So you look at it from winter to spring, summer, fall, winter, and all the activities that are involved in that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the third book was called Hands in Harmony, uh, it's traditional crafts and music in, in Appalachia. And all of these were published by W.W. W. Norton in New York, uh, he, my editor there I worked with on all three projects. And that one was... Uh, dealing with traditional crafts and music. So I went to music festivals, met a lot of people. One person would lead me to another. Um, I got a list from the Southern Highland Craft Guild of what they considered their heritage crafts people, and I would go in and, and contact them and photograph them. And I ended up writing a biography for each person so they wouldn't have to kind of toot their own horn too much, and then did an oral history interview with them, which has been a component of all three of those books. And then I actually worked with Don Petty, a friend of mine, uh, to produce a music CD to go in the book that would have 22 tunes by the people that I had photographed in the book. So it's acapella ballads, shape note singing, a lot of different kinds of traditional fiddle and banjo tunes. A lot of fun. And more recently, I've done two color books. One will be out in September, the other one... Uh, I did on the Blue Ridge Parkway in 2014, and it covers the entire length of the parkway and has mountain peak identification so that when you drive into the parkway to a particular overlook, you open the book up and it shows you what you're looking at and then expands on that with text about where the roads and rivers and trails are and what's to do nearby and kind of tourist attractions. And it's been a big success and been uh, a good seller on the parkway. And 
I still do book signings for that over there uh, this past weekend, actually. And so I'm doing a companion book on the Great Smoky Mountains called Great Smoky Mountains Vistas. And it will be things to do in and around the National Park. And with this year being the 100th anniversary of the National Park System, I'm trying to you know, kind of play into that and get that out there. And um, it'll be a little bit more of a just a tourist guide because there's not quite as many views as you have on a 469 mile leg of the parkway, of course. But I've spent 35 years you know, camping in the Smokies and hiking and was born in Bryson City, kind of in the, the shadow of the Smokies. And my mother and dad were school teachers in that area and took me camping when I was a kid there. So it's, you know, kind of just a natural fit for that. And those two books are both self-published. I have a publishing company that I um, have started that I'm using to do these two books myself. Okay. Didn't know that. So your first two books, were they, were those photos shot Kind of in the same period and became two different books or were these two completely separate projects uh, they were shot a, a little overlapping there was probably uh, more in the second book that were shot a little later on um, you know and I try to kind of just take a different focus to the presentation of it and um, in the back there's oral history interviews with the people on on all three of the black and white books uh, that Norton did so that when you look at the portrait in the front you can enjoy that and everything but I've always found that it helps to have a little bit of backstory to a portrait because we're so used to celebrity photography which I don't you know really relish um, but you know there we almost have a built-in backstory with mm -hmm. someone you know you 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 associate movies and things that they've done and things that you've read and so it's not really as necessary but when i show a portrait of someone you know in their home or doing a farm activity or something like that it, it can be interesting and hopefully it's it's powerful to them but that they're always people are always asking me more for a story about it and so having that oral history interview allows a person to you know, explain what they're doing or tell a story about their life and then what i do as an editor is take all of those oral histories and, and try to meld them together and, and organize them and then make sure that there's not too much conversation about tobacco or logging or any one thing. You know, it kind of gives a variety to the lifestyle and kind of have my input there. And will you talk about where you went to take these photos and how you met the people? Yeah, um, the first uh, book really I just was wandering around. Um, I never was comfortable with photographing people so much. I always enjoy doing landscapes like most people. They enjoy doing landscapes and flowers and things like that and they don't really want to deal with people and all. But I was so taken with the work of other portrait photographers, uh, Imogene Cunningham and a guy named Arl Newman from New York who did time life photography and did the, uh, kind of the father what we call the environmental portrait where people in their surroundings versus in a studio setting. And so I really the more I, I looked at that in college, the more I really felt like that's something I wanted to at least try in working for Mount Living. It's opportunity to do the kind of Mount Living article on traditional mountain life would allow me to do some of the portraits as well. And what I didn't realize at the time, which was a benefit, uh, as it turned out, is that by going out during the week, I tended to find people working. They weren't sitting at home on the weekends or whatever, although farm life is pretty much working every day anyway, except for Sundays a lot of times. So rather than going out on a Saturday or Sunday when people might not be out in the fields working or whatever, I was actually catching them out there. And I started out with this whole spiel, okay, I'm Tim Barnwell, I'm working for Mountain Living Magazine, I'm doing an article on traditional mountain life, and I would, you know, can I take your picture doing this stuff? And over a period of time, it kind of evolved to the point where I could see 
with myself, it was a game of how long could I talk to somebody before they asked me why I was there. You know, mm-hmm. in some cases they never did. You know, or I would just spend half a day or a day with somebody, and you know, it just was a natural kind of thing. And I realized over time that there was a lot of this. You know, visiting with your neighbor aspect that used to be very prevalent in the mountains. You know, you didn't go over to somebody's house for 15 minutes or a half hour. You know, by the time you walked there or took a car, if you had one, you know, you spend an afternoon or the day or the preacher would come over after church and spend the afternoon at your house and have lunch and all that. So there's that aspect of it, I think, really, I was able to kind of tie into, uh, maybe inadvertently, that um, enabled me to spend a lot of time with people. And sometimes I would get my better pictures the second or third time back, you know. Uh, because you know, when you drive away from somewhere, you always think of the stuff you should have done, you know, the mm-hmm. pictures you should have thing, the questions you should have asked, all those things. Because when you're in the moment, it's really hard to kind of think on your feet, especially when you're doing view camera work and stuff that's very involved on a technical level. So you have to be comfortable enough with the technical aspects of what you're doing that you can really concentrate on having a conversation with someone while you're setting your camera up and all that. Um, so it was a very different kind of approach and. Uh, a little bit more static than some of my newer stuff because the camera equipment is required to do it and exposures and all that sort of thing but it gives it really this kind of I think timeless quality to a lot of the images because of you know I'm I'm trying to look for those situations where you can't really peg something and then also like to include little elements where you can you know you'll be a a scene that maybe someone's kitchen and then you got these like Disney cartoon you know um, curtains on the window or something that just doesn't seem to fit you know Mm -hmm. so there's always a wonderful serendipity of working with people and that's why i like doing environmental portraits is you know you're photographing someone and visiting with them in the space that they've created over a lifetime in many cases Um, so that's always interesting to see where people live what's important to them Um, so that that became a very important aspect so most of the photographs you know, have the elements of where they live, where they work, uh, some, you know, hobby maybe, or with the musicians and craftspeople. Of course, it's a little more uh, ingrained because you know it's something they do for a living, and they're a little easier to talk to because they're doing craft fairs or they're performing on stage or they're used to being out in the public. But the farming is more reticent. You know, it's a harder thing to kind of do. I, for whatever reason, seem to get women to be able to talk a little more than the men, you know. But uh, I really enjoyed, you know, that aspect of just meeting people and, and sharing their lives and learning, you know, kind of what was important to them. What, you know, and it helped confirm to me my own place in the community. I think that's one of the biggest things I learned is kind of where I fit and you know, what my values are and and what I think is important. And you know, uh, by spending a lot of time with people who live in a very basic direct connection to the earth <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so you were wandering in the countryside is that that's basically yeah how you so i would go out and a lot of times i would go into madison county especially uh, haywood county anything within a day's drive of Asheville, uh, mostly out of buncombe county but in the rural areas of buncombe county but a lot in madison county early on because it was one of those counties that was very remote 
a lot of it was insulated from a lot of the more modern influences for longer than other years because of the mountains and the inaccessibility of the roads and steepness of the terrain and all those sorts of things. So you had pockets where you could still find people working horses and mules because the land is so steep. I went to so many funerals with my dad over the years of students that played ball for him whose tractor would turn over on them on the hillside and kill them. And, you know, so a lot of people would still use horses and mules and things that were much more sure footed to work on the real steep hills and all. So you could still find that just driving around. Um, that's all but gone today. Um, but, you know, at that time, you, you could still almost step back in time 15, 20 years in some, some of these sections. And a lot of changes. Yeah. 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 And yeah. you, is it correct that you grew up in Madison County? Uh, I was born in Bryson City, and uh-huh. we lived in Franklin for a few years, and we moved to Marshall in Madison County. My mother was a school teacher there. My father was a school teacher and a basketball and football coach at, at the Madison High School, and, and my mother taught at Walnut Elementary. And then we moved to Asheville when I was young and spent the rest of the time here, except for a few years in Greenville when my parents split. I went with my mom to Greenville until I was 16, then moved back with my dad in Black Mountain and then started to go to UNCA. And after the first year, I just moved to Asheville on my own to, to continue going to UNCA and graduated there with a political science degree, which has been real helpful in later life. But it's you know, what I had the most hours in and got me out of school. And um, that's where I picked up a lot of my photography skills because I worked for the annual in the newspaper and, and uh, work-study program to put myself through school. Uh, part of that was working for the Learning Resource Center, a media center, mm-hmm. uh, doing the faculty needs for what they needed. We processed black-and-white film, color slide film, you know, did copy work for them, did audiovisual productions for them, uh, a lot mm-hmm. of things like that. So, yeah. And the people in your books... It sounds like you're saying you built relationships with them at, as you grew in what you were doing. You developed relationships. Right. Most with of them, them I did not know before I photographed them. You know, uh, I might have some connection I found out about later. They might know my stepfather because he ran a mill in town, or you know, I would have something there. And you've always got to make those connections. You know, with people in the South, you know, they always want to know where you're from and how you're connected to, to them or their area or something like that. And having lived in Marshall as a kid and my mom remarried and moved back to Mars Hill and lived in Madison County for a number of years. And her husband was on the college board and he ran the mill in, in Marshall and stuff. So there was a lot of connections there as well. But ultimately, the people that I photographed uh, were all just people I kind of stumbled upon. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. And that was a 25 year project. Yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time, and I guess it wasn't until 2000, I just kind of made a New Year's resolution, which I usually don't do and certainly rarely keep, <laughs> but that was my New Year's resolution 2000, is I was going to publish this as a book. And my mother gave me some money, to, and I hired a graphic artist, and basically sat down and, and created a book. Now, it ended up being very different, not very different, but it was different when it went to Norton and they accepted it. But for years, I'd sent out loose samples of photographs with some oral histories and a cover letter, and everybody liked it, but nobody really got it, you know. Mm -hmm. But yet when I put it together as a complete book and printed it out and had a spiral bound and office supply, and I could hand this to someone, when I had those, I made two of those, and I sent them one to Norton Books in New York because... One of my mentors uh, in New Jersey, a guy named George Tice, he had an editor at Norton that he worked with and told him about my work. And he'd been, well, he was one of the people who came and talked for me years ago, excellent black and white photographer and printer. So I sent one to, to his editor, uh, Jim Mars at Norton, and then I sent a second copy to um, one of the UNC presses here. 
And within a few weeks, both of them said they wanted to do it. And at that point, I chose Norton simply because they had better distribution and a bigger reputation. We're a national company in New York and had connections in London and wherever. So it just made more sense to do that. So that, uh, you know, but I'm really convinced to this day that I don't know the project would have happened if I hadn't done that. You would think that these people... That's their business and they can envision things like that, but I really found that it's just simply not true. You know, you almost have to hand someone a finished product before they really understand the full concept of what you're trying to do. And so since then, that's what I've done. And in, in the cases of all three books of Norton, the only thing that I did the sequencing, I did all the editing of the oral history part, you know, they put it together and did the graphics and, and made it fit. But, you know, all the sequencing, all the image selection, everything that's in there, something I did and then handed to them. They, in a couple of cases, they wanted to change a cover shot or change, you know, some minor thing like that. But overall, it's pretty much my finished product, and I'm proud of that because I didn't realize that that was unusual until I started talking to other photography friends that had work published. In some cases, they just turned everything in. They hadn't, didn't see the book until it was finished. So they had no input at all about the sequencing of the images. And and that's something I learned from, from Tice, I think, because... That's his art form. He has like 14 books out over the years. And, you know, it's when you're a still photographer, you're dealing with single images. Yet when you start to put a book together, now you have to find two images that play well together on the same opposite pages. And then you've got to have a sequence to things because even though you're not seeing everything at one time, your mind is recording this, whether you realize it or not. So I would lay this thing out on the floor and have, you know, a hundred images in the first two books. I would have a hundred images laying out, and I would spend weeks reshuffling things and then trying to come up with a sequence so that it went all through the seasons or all through a particular activity or, or it, you know, took this out. And, and then there's always just a few images that don't seem to work with anything, and you either got to put a, a white page opposite if they're really a busy photograph, for instance. So there's a real art to putting that together, and I, I always have enjoyed that too. And I think that's what's continued with my more current books. Is you know I'll get the book designer, and she does a wonderful job. Um, but then I'll try to also try to have a lot of input on. You know, I don't see anything I don't want in in print, and you know, I try to say I want this one full page, or these are important images, and those kind of things. So when we look at these beautiful books, we're seeing. Your hands, we're seeing. And all aspects of it. I don't, I don't know if I'm a control freak or just compulsive or something, but I, I have a very strong vision of what I want. I don't think I do, I guess. I never thought I did, but I really know the project better than anybody else. I really feel like I have an understanding of the community and what I'm trying to portray and how best to do that um, because I've lived it for mm -hmm. so many years and, and dealt with every aspect of transcribing the recordings and editing them and, you know, putting all of this together and, and trying to edit images. And in some cases, I'll have, let's say, three, three portraits of someone. I like them all, and I'll be happy with any three of them. And so I'll put them out on the floor, and I'll have a, a handful of friends who I trust, not all photographers, just, you know, people that are visually savvy, and they'll look at it and they'll say, and I'll have them put their initials on the back. And if I turn it over and there's four initials out of five people on the back of that one, then that'll be it. And I'm happy with that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's good to have people that you can count on to, um, you know, give you that, that kind of feedback. You know, the, the bad thing sometimes is you'll turn it over and be two initials on one, two initials on another, and one on the third. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, usually it's not that way. Usually, um, 
or, you know, I have a pretty good idea of which image I like and how it fits with the others. And sometimes it's nice to have the flexibility of being able to say, okay, of these two, horizontal and vertical, this one fits this page better opposite this other one, so I'll use this one. You know, sometimes it's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. But most of the time you've edited all these images down from, you know, several hundred to about a hundred, you know, to try to make it work and try to keep the strongest of the group. And right now I'm working on another project on shrimping on the coast of South Carolina and Georgia, North Carolina. So I'm going to the Outer Banks next week to spend a week down there photographing on that project. And there again, it's something done over the last probably five years or so. And I'll spend a week or 10 days at the coast, you know, several times a year and go out on boats and, you know, um, try to, and this will be a color project, but it's still a documentary type thing of documenting this industry because it's, it's very similar in ways uh, that I had not anticipated to, uh, even though it's very different geographically. The mindset of the people that do this are very similar to the farmers. You know, they always are optimistic. They always think next year is going to be better than this, which it probably is not. Um, there's all these influences of high cost of fuel and, and, um, all that to deal with. Uh, most of the younger generations are not choosing to continue this life. So this is kind of the last generation of maybe two or three that are not going to continue. You know, they'll take a public works job, as they call them, or they'll do something different, um, you know. So there's parallels to yeah. your earlier work. Yeah, so it's been been very much uh, uh, kind of an interesting thing. Very independent people, um, very hard to get to know. Um, I, you know, so it's, it's, it's a, you know, it takes a similar skill set to be able to kind of work your way into their life and, and get them comfortable enough with you to let you go out with them or spend a day with them and things, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but it's exhilarating too. I mean, and one guy recommended me to somebody else and I'd never met him and I show up at four o'clock in the morning with my lunch and a, a case and my cameras and get on the boat with three men I've never met before and spend the day with them, you know, and that's, You've had experiences yeah, most people will never get, and you can show them to us. Right, and so, you photos. know, that's just something that, I don't know if it comes natural, because I never really felt that comfortable. I've always been pretty good one-on-one -on -one with people. I never enjoyed talking to big groups. I've gotten much better at that, because I give a lot of talks now to library groups and other things about my different book projects, so, I, you know, I can do all that now. But at the time, um, you know, I, if I could get with somebody, and I think that's just mostly from being very direct and honest with people. I don't think there's any big secret to it. You know, everybody thinks, well, you've got to be this, or you've got to be from the South, or you've got to... And I'm not sure that's all true. I think really it's just what people respect is that, you know, I don't lie to them about stuff. I don't promise to do stuff I can't do. I, you know, I'm very direct. I think the thing that they're kind of amazed at is that they can't figure out why I'm interested in what they're doing, which is a very ordinary to them day-to-day -day activity, you know, mm -hmm. and so they, you know. They're trying to figure you out as right, much as you you're know. trying to figure them out. Yeah. And so, especially in more modern times, it gets to where people think somehow money's involved, that somehow you're going to be making money on them or things like that, and, you know, they mm -hmm. think you're going to make all this money on the book projects, and none of those projects have ever made much money. I mean, I've made considering the years I put into it, I've never made minimum wage on any of those kind of things. And that's not why I do them. I mean, I do them because I don't, that's who I am. I don't have any choice about it. It's just what I would do whether I get paid to do it or not. And my commercial business supports that. And mm -hmm. that's really the way it works. Mm -hmm. That what you've done in the books is your art. Yeah. 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 And I don't look at it as an economic thing. If anybody wants prints, any number of prints, I'll give them whatever they want. I don't charge them for anything. I always take pictures back to them after I photograph them. And, you know, it's always been a way to, you know, 
once they see those, they're more comfortable and their friends may see them and then they'll tell me, well, you know, maybe you ought to come over to my place. I do this or that and the other. And so it's just been a great thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, You've been able to follow the thread right. of the people by yeah. showing them what you were doing. Yeah. And then I'll put the word out in the community that I'm looking for a river baptism to photograph or something like that. And then someone will call, well, we're having one down at our church next week if you would like to come and, you know, things. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of work, work in with that. Can you talk about the difference in your artistic decision between using black and white in the earlier books and color for the current book? Um, I've always kind of considered, I mean, I've always shot more color than I have black and white. As a commercial photographer, it's almost always color. But um, uh, now the, the neat thing about digital that I really like is you shoot everything in color and then you convert it to black and white. So I always have a color original I can go back to, which I never did before. So I don't have the option of going back and, and doing color prints or images of things unless I shot separate film, you know, years ago. And I do have a, a collection of those, but you know, not nearly the concentration. And the shrimping project actually started out as a black and white project. I had no idea it was going to become color. And finally, my assistant Scott and I were, and my friend Nick were around one day looking at the images, and I had printed, he just said, you know, Scott said, you know, I just, I don't know I've ever said this to you, but I just, I'm hating converting some of these to black and white. They're so powerful in color, and there's just something about it. And I said, well, I've got the same feeling. I just, you know, I can't quite get myself to admit it, but, you know, I've got to get the same feeling. So what I did was just take about 25 images that I had at the time, and I printed them both in color and black and white, and I laid them out together and looked at them as a body of work, and there was no question that it was a color project. You know, it just kind of shocked me um, that that it spoke in color. And um, I think part of it is there's a different quality of light on the coast. I think there's some much more pastel colors, much more muted colors that are just beautiful. Um, there's a lot more vibrant color because you've got a backdrop of generally white boats with men in yellow and red jumper, you know, outfits on and, and uh, you know, all the color baskets that they put the shrimp in of you know, a variety of pastel colors. And uh, then the blue of the sky and the, you know, blue green of the water, it just, it just works much better mm-hmm. uh, in color. Now, there's some images that work equally well as both, and there's some that are probably stronger in black and white. But as a body of work, I finally just had to just admit that it was going to be a color color project. So It was hard to let that color go. Huh? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I still, what I try to do is I've always tried to just let the image speak to whether it needs to be black and white or color and not try to preconceive it too much. Now, if I know it's going to be a black and white image, then I am looking for different qualities in the scene. I'm playing up different things. I'm picking different backgrounds. I'm, you know, looking what people are wearing. I'm more conscious of that um, than I am probably with with color images. Um, but again, with the digital thing now, being able to have that choice later, it really opens up a lot of artistic opportunities. So it's uh, nice that digital gives you that choice then. It is. Um, you know, there's a lot of good and bad things about any of the process. Uh, um, I really feel like for a long time when digital first came out, I don't know that the quality was really there. It was not comparable to what I could get with larger format films and stuff like that. So I really, there's a delay there when I started using it in the studio, which in general, it doesn't require as big of an enlargement or the same kind of quality in some cases, or I have much more control over a scene in the studio with lighting and contrast and all. I could 
use the digital before I would consider it what good enough for my personal work, you know, to compete with the four by five or two and a quarter camera in the field. Mm -hmm. But that's changed. And now I, I don't think I want to go back. You know, I still have my darkroom at home and I haven't printed in there and but once or twice in the last couple of years. And I swore I'd take it all down in a year if I hadn't printed, but I still can't get myself to do that. But it's there if I need it. Um, and But pretty much everything's done with desktop and big tabletop printers now. I can print 24-inch wide uh, out of a printer here in my studio and make 24 by 36 prints, which I never could do in my darkroom, anything that big, 16 by 20 or maybe 20 by 24 is about the limit of that because of the tray sizes and the size of the sink and you're not using all these chemicals anymore and you know, a lot of the water use. I mean, I, I really don't miss the darkroom that much. People get romantic about it, but, uh, you know, I really enjoyed it for the years, but uh, I, I just have a different work method now and it's mm -hmm. you know, you've adapted and yeah. moved on and i had the choice because at my age I, when digital came around i had a lot of people that were the next generation older that didn't want to make that change mm -hmm. and a lot of my mentors uh will never make that change they will continue to do film and they have enough uh, paper and chemistry and and film uh, in their freezers, they literally have floor freezers full of this stuff that they, they stocked will, up. Yeah, that um. they will use until they die, you know, mm -hmm. or quit working. And but me, I had to choose because I wasn't young enough to retire, and I didn't want to continue fighting something that you know is inevitable. But I'm not an early adopter, you know. I mm -hmm. guess it's a change. I mean, it took me a while to really feel like and a lot of testing and trying different papers out and to see if I could come up with something that I could hang in a show at a museum in with my darker prints and no one could tell. And mm -hmm. once I could do that, I was comfortable with the change. You proved it to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Now, other people probably never see it anyway, and there's probably my uh, people that I admire that could come in and tell, you know. Mm -hmm. But by the time it gets behind glass on the museum wall, you know, it, you'd be hard-pressed. I, I can't even remember sometimes. I'll look at it. I can't remember whether it's a darker print or a digital print, you know. Maybe there's a book in that. Right. A book in the old ways of photography. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, yeah, I mean, so you can... But it evolves. I mean, it always has. And, you know, we've seen a, a kind of real revolution of the last 15 years in both the printing industry, the music industry, the photography industry. All these things have been revolutionized by the digital media. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And before we move on from your earlier books, I'm realizing I have a question about that. Obviously, what you're doing right now, you know you're doing a book on the shrimp boats. And I wonder at what point in the earlier books, did you know you were doing books, not well, just single portraits? Right. I think you start out with single images. And then once you get to a certain number, let's say 12 to 15, then you've got enough for a magazine article. And when you get about 30, then you've got enough for a museum display or a gallery display. Once you get past that point in the 50 to 60 range, you've got a book. You know, if you want to continue to work on it. You had such a body of work yeah. available. And that's what it is. Okay. I mean, you always are con creating those single images. and you. Um, but if you stay with a the theme long enough or you look back over a long enough career, you can find themes in that. Recently, I've been submitting work to a magazine called Lens Work. And one of the little exercises they have is called Seeing in Sixes, where you pick six images out on a theme and submit them. And then they're going to pick those out and publish them in a book. So it was really kind of fun to sit down and say, okay, I don't have a, you know, 
enough to do a book of this, but I've got six good images of metal mills or barbershops or mm -hmm. uh, old white churches in the country or, you know. It doesn't have to be like 50 that. this yeah, time. Yeah, you know, it, it can be fun. It can be, you know, just something that keeps popping up in my work that I keep photographing and I don't know what I'll do with it, if anything. But there's enough there to have fun with and, you know, to put together little, little themes like that. And what was the name of the magazine? Lynn's Work. Lynn's? Work. Work. Mm -hmm. Lynn's Work. Yeah, it's a black, well, it was black and white, now it's color and black and white. Uh, magazine comes out of Seattle, or well, Washington State. And it's one of the, I guess, probably the premier photography fine art publication does. Basically, no technical articles, it's just... Uh, all visual portfolios and stuff nice. and with maybe you know a little text to them so there's it's always interesting i just sent another submission i'd done a commission down on the coast of south carolina and georgia and so for two weeks each spring for the last few years i've gone to savannah and charleston and shot um, and i have a friend who helped sponsor that uh, and his interest is in architecture primarily so i spent a lot more time photographing like the Old churches, courthouses, uh, old structures in Charleston and Savannah, old homes, things like that, and did you know about 180 images over the years of from there. And I don't know that it would be a book project. I don't know if there'd be a commercial demand for it. So instead, I pick 50 images out, send it to Lens Work, and we'll see if they'll publish it. You know, as a portfolio of 12 or 15 images. And the nice thing about what they do is then they do a digital version. And they can put any number of images mm -hmm. in that, and you get a. If you subscribe to that, you get, you know, not only the print edition, but you get the the CD version. It's another place to be seen right. online. Yeah, it's a way yeah. to get your work out there and have an end use for it without having to think that you, you know, that there's going to be thousands of people that are going to be interested in mm -hmm. it. Maybe there's hundreds of people, and they can enjoy it that way. Mm -hmm. And my last question about the older books. Um, Besides the people seeing the prints that you gave them, were have you shown them the books? Have any oh, yeah. of them seen? And what yeah. kind of feedback did you get? Uh, you know, uh, I think I used to worry about how I presented people or how they would take it because we're all real critical of ourselves, especially in portraits. But one thing I figured out is you always look great in photos that were five years old. You know, so when you look back at your photos from five years ago, you think you look pretty good in that photo compared to what you have today that you're not happy with. And a lot of the people I photographed were older people, mm -hmm. and I think they're much more comfortable. They've kind of settled into what they look like and who they are in their own skin, and, and they're not as self-conscious and are, are worried about that kind of stuff. Um, but the families, that's where it's really been an amazing thing to have so many younger generations say, I'm so glad that you photograph my father because that's the only pictures we ever had of him or anything that's decent you know or whatever uh or my grandfather or whatever it happened to be and so i i get that a lot and um so one of the things i've been kind of toying with lately is going back and re-photographing people that i photographed 25 or 30 years ago or their families and stuff and been doing some of that um and that's been a interesting so we'll see what comes of that if there's enough there mm -hmm. to work with and I can find enough people that are still living and, and trying to make something out of that. So that's been, that's given me the opportunity to stay in touch with people and with certain families and see the younger generations coming up and, you know, kind of keep those connections there. And there's people that I visit and, and take them lunch and, you know, do that. Um, mm -hmm. and my assistant Scott was trying to do something similar, uh, with a different theme. 
for a while and and he came to me one day and said you didn't tell me i was adopting all of these families you know <laughs> because now they call me wanting to take them to the grocery store and, and all this. i was like well yeah you know there's a certain number of people that you you know, just kind of hit it off with and and you stay in touch with and you know stay yeah. friends with them even if you only see them every couple of years or something you know that is nice that they yeah. know that you were there and yeah. scott is there so that's, I think, you know, I, I always look at it from a documentary. In some cases, it has this historical aspect to it. And then for families, it's very much a personal thing. They don't maybe see the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. But they don't need to. You know, they, they, it's important to them because it was their particular family member that's in there. I was talking with someone yesterday who wasn't born, like doesn't go back generations here, but came to Madison County and was farming in the 70s for a good amount of time and um, I asked her if you had ever photographed her family, and her response was, I wish he had. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's only so much time. That's the, that's the thing that you really realize as you get older is that, you know, I have to be much more judicious in how I spend my time and the projects that I take on. And every project I do, I've spent years doing so it's I don't do current events type subjects or mm-hmm. those kind of things because I'm trying to find things that stand the test of time mm-hmm. that'll keep my interest over that period of time because I know it's going to take me that long to do it around my commercial jobs and other stuff. I can't just you know get a grant. I wish I could get a grant and just go off and you know. But everything's self-funded. Everything I have to do as I can afford to do it and as I have the time to do it. So I have to be you know I really have to kind of think about what it is that's important to me that I think other people might enjoy and, and try to do that. Mm-hmm. You're finding things that fit your lifestyle, your, right. the rest of your work. Yeah. You know, and, and so I can take a week or 10 days here or there and do do that, you know, in different areas and stuff, but that's about it. You know, so I can cobble a few of those together each year and then, you know, try to make a, a kind of a mental list of what I need to get done. And so I'm usually working on two or three projects mm-hmm. at the same time. You mm-hmm. know, I don't generally finish one and just start another out of the blue it's there's always this overlap when one's getting through another one's halfway done and you know mm-hmm. then i get to where i need to push it along and concentrate on it and i'm still out promoting the last book and you know, trying to do that so it's a juggle mm-hmm. you know in that sense yeah it but, is but it's something i enjoy or i guess i wouldn't keep putting myself in that position right, <laughs> right. So, yeah. a question from a video you have mm-hmm. on your website you made a statement that i won't be able to quote verbatim but you made a statement that occasionally a photographer will get a shot that is a work of art and i wanted to ask you about that what in your determination will make a photo a work of art i don't know that i could answer that uh if I could, I probably would be able to reproduce it in some sense. But mm-hmm. I think each one is is unique. Uh, it offers something unique to the viewer. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always my goal. My goal is always to create art when I do go out to photograph. Now, whether I achieve that or not is is problematic because most times you don't achieve that. You know, I I, I don't think all photographs are art. I don't think all paintings are art just by definition of the media. But there's something that rises above, something that resonates with the viewer. Um, I may be happy or with one piece and other people don't get it, don't see it. 
Other times I'm not that crazy about something and everybody loves it. So, you know, I can't really say that there's any one thing that works. Uh, but I think there's a combination of elements that somehow comes together, uh, that just resonates with something in your soul when you look at it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some, something there that's almost indefinable. For me, it is. Uh, being a visual artist, I'm not quite as good at explaining maybe how the, things work and I'm not a conceptual artist that I, where I lay everything out and it's all about the project and all about the concept and very little about the photograph you know um, mine I think are, are basically all subject driven kinds of things rather than conceptual driven so uh, most of my work is very subject based uh, and you know I, I think some things I, I think are pretty pictures and everybody likes them and that's great and I'm happy to have those but, you know, I think a certain percentage, I hope, will kind of rise above that and stand the test of time so that when you look back at an arc of your work, you know, you'll have a few dozen images that really stand out uh, as kind of key elements of what you were able to accomplish. So you're saying you know it when you see it or when you feel it. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, I don't know that I know it when I create it or uh -huh. when I shoot it. Uh -huh. But, you know, uh, I mean, sometimes I know something's going to be good. I always want to be excited about coming back and processing the image. That's what used to be the wonderful thing about darker work was I would wait till the last step in the dark and pull my 4 by 5 sheet of film out of the last tray and turn the lights on and know whether I got it or not. Now, digital's kind of a cheat because you can look right then and there, mm -hmm. and as long as it's technically good, you know you, you know that you got it. But that's a real change from years ago where you'd have to shoot a lot extra film, uh, take a lot of extra precautions uh, to, to you know not have some technical fault that ruined a perfectly good image or maybe your best image. You know? mm -hmm. So that's another difference today with digital. But uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes you're, you, you know you're more excited, but... Um, uh, sometimes you get a nice surprise, too. Something that you thought was kind of ordinary turns out to really sing. It's amazing to me. You have all these books with these amazing images in them, and you said maybe 12 in a lifetime will do well, it Well, I don't you. know. That's what they used to say. You know, with, <laughs> uh, they used to say if you were lucky to have a dozen in a lifetime, you know, that were kind of your signature images. And, mm -hmm. and with the exception of Ansel Adams, probably most people, even photographers, can't point to two or three images by a particular other photographer that as their kind of classic work. So mm -hmm. you know, it's a little strange. Um, people get known for, well, even with Ansel Adams, Moonrise, Hernandez, and some of the different things like that were kind of his signature images, mm -hmm. even though he created, you know, thousands of negatives and he's probably the more published nature photographer out there, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, but... Uh, the ones we're so familiar with, you're right. saying. Yeah. Yeah. And they, you know, there's something about them that hits a broader audience. And that's the other thing, you know, it's a very democratic kind of art. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's uh, and it's reproducible. Uh, it's something that you know, a lot of people can see in a lot of forms. And the wonderful thing to me about books is, used to you had to go to a museum to really appreciate a, a, a photographer's work, especially. So if you saw an Adamsel Adams book from the 1960s or 70s, they were kind of okay. I mean, the images were great, but the reproductions were very marginal. You go see that same image in a museum show, it would just knock you out. You know, it was just a world of difference. Now the reproduction quality is so good that there's often, except for the size and the impact from the size of the reproduction, you know, the quality of the reproduction is, is equal to the original print in many cases. 
So the viewer is getting a good feel for right. what the photographer yeah. intended. And the wonderful thing about doing book projects is instead of a few hundred people being able to see a museum exhibit at most, let's say, you've got thousands of people that now can look at that body of work mm-hmm. and enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. And can you talk about the Parkway book, the Blue Ridge Parkway book, how that came about and what you were doing with that? Yeah. Um, it just kind of, I was I always loved traveling on the Parkway, and I would go up and ride along uh, and take pictures and stop at all the overlooks. And I was, you know, always get asked by people when I got my tripod, I said, oh, you know what that mountain is or that. And well, I knew generally which direction I'm looking, and I knew some of the key mountains like Coal Mountain and Pisgah and all the stuff that we all know. But beyond that, it, it just occurred to me that one day when I was at the Hominy Valley overlook up near Mount Pisgah, that there's a really strong shaped peak out there. I didn't know what it was. You know, and I said, I ought to know what that is. I mean, I've lived here all my life. I ought to know it's that distinctive. I ought to know what that is. And so I took a compass heading reading and um, made some notes and went back and got maps out. And the only thing I could figure, uh, you know, was it might be Sandy Mush Bald, but I've been up there a number of times and it was not that sharp. It was a rounded dome. And so it didn't make sense that that would be it. But it took, you know, it just raised a lot of questions because all of a sudden I'm going, okay, how far was I seeing? Is that two miles away? Is that five miles, 10 miles? What am I, how far am I seeing? You know, I had no way to gauge that. And, you know, I mean, ultimately they've got to be under 6,600 and something feet from Mount Mitchell. But, you know, short of that, is it 4,000, 5,000 feet? You know, how is it and everything? So it's kind of started that way, just as for my own satisfaction to try to figure things out. And then I thought, well, there ought to be something out there that tells me that. And I did an exhaustive research and could find nothing. You know, there was one plaque up at Mount Pisgah, which is still probably the best one around, that has a line drawing of what you see from the deck there. But most of the ones that I'd seen at other places uh, were just terrible. They or no resemblance to what your view was. You know, they were just bad reproductions of, of what it was. You couldn't even recognize the mountains that they were identifying, but there's very few of those. And I just started chipping away at it, but it turned out to be probably one of the most difficult things I've ever tried to do. So I, I would stop for months at a time and give up and just, you know, it's just too difficult. And I, then I'd just get frustrated that I couldn't figure it out and think, you know, it ought not to be that hard. I, surely I can figure this out. And I'll go back and work on it again. And I've kind of figured out a working method. And I can't say that it ever got easier. It still takes the same amount of time to do. But I got more confident in what I was doing. And I had at least a working method of how to figure it out. And um, so I started out thinking I would do, you know, parts of the parkway, just interesting things in Western North Carolina, the Great Smokies, you know, some of that stuff. But then when I got pretty far along with the number of identifications I'd done, I realized from if I was going to make a book out of it that it needed more of a focus to it. It couldn't just be Western North Carolina necessarily. If I was going to say it's a parkway, it's got to be the entire parkway. And I can't have the, have the Smokies in there. That's a separate thing, especially from a marketing standpoint. You know, mm-hmm. So I had to go back and, and drop the Smokies stuff I'd done and go do the Virginia section of the parkway, which I hadn't done and try to do those identifications in areas that I was much less familiar with, even. Um, so that took a while. So it took about five years total to, you know, pretty hard work to to get that done. And last year, especially, trying to do it. And 
uh, to try to find clear enough days, you know, when the parkway is open, which is not all year round. No, technically it is, but you know, for practical purposes, it closes down when the weather turns bad and they don't open it back up again, or at least large sections of it. So you're probably talking from April to November and getting clear days in the summer anymore. That's why they call it Great Smoky Mountains and the Blue Ridge. And, you know, it's just, it's haze. You know, we, we have that. It's not just pollution. It's just haze. It's natural. And as it heats up, you get more of that. So getting those real crystal clear days is basically a spring and fall. And then to be able to take those days, you can't tell two days ahead of time that it's going to be that way. You know, one day will just be perfectly clear. The next day will still be sunny and pretty, but it's not clear, clear, you know. So that was a real challenge. And the last year I worked on it, I think I had seven or eight days, period, that were what I consider clear enough days to do these really oh, wow. long-range views, you know, wow. to do that. So that was part of the challenge. But then once I got the images together, I started putting them together. And uh, I realized that I was just naming things. And without some kind of context, when I would show it to other people, they didn't really care as much, you know, as I might, uh, having done it. So I started going, okay, well, you know, now that you know where the names of these peaks are, here's where the roads and the rivers are, and here's where the Appalachian Trail comes across these peaks from here to here to here, and, and it starts adding interest to it, and here's what county you're seeing, and here's a little history about the area or what they used to do, and then I would include little inset photos on each page with a panoramic view that would show nearby attractions, maybe a museum or a gallery or a waterfall or something of that nature that would be a kind of a place to visit while you were traveling to kind of make it right. more interesting like you that. put it all in context for yeah. people yeah. yeah and so to try to give you a really a sense of where you are you know on mm -hmm. the top line you can look at it it's just what city you're looking toward or what cardinal direction north south east west you're looking at on the second third and fourth lines would be actual points of interest within the frame you know and then uh, the text would take that to the next step of trying to make it you know, connect together so that, you know, it made more sense as to not only just generally where you're looking, but specifically if you're from that area, you know what this valley is and what community it's, how many valley in this here. And, you know, you come from Canner out 40 and then take, you know, 197 through here, you know, whatever it happens to be and try to be, you know, specific enough to where people with local knowledge will still find it interesting. And but, you yeah. said something in your intro in that book that really struck me that along the lines of your own life was enhanced by being able to place yourself and place yourself in relation to these places and understand better where the mountains were. Yeah, I mean, I think it gives me, it got me a real sense of, of where I am, where I grew up, what communities were around me that, you know, because when you're, it's almost like you develop this aerial view of your surroundings when you do this because you're looking at the bigger picture of what's there. In some cases, there are aerial photographs. Um, but, you know, a community that might be 15, 20 miles away by car and take you two hours to get there really may just be over on the other it's side right of the ridge. Over there. Yeah. yeah. You know, so if you could go across that ridge or fly over that ridge, that's where it would be. And that's what I started putting those connections together. It was really wonderful. I remember coming down Soco Gap one day from Cherokee, 
And I thought, well, what's on the other side of that ridge? And it never occurred to me that it was Catalucci Valley. Because to get to Catalucci Valley, you got to go all the way out through Maggie Valley, turn left on Jonathan Creek over toward I-40, then go back over the Catalucci Divide down into the valley. It's the only way to get there. you know. But yet, that's really where it's it really was. Right it was there. just right on that next ridge. And uh. I got thinking, well, of course that is, because Catalucci Ski Resort's right at the top up there. you know. Uh-huh. So that would make sense. you know. But those kind of connections and then trying to kind of figure out um, a lot of that, you know, where where those connections are and where the communities are and how they were either isolated or interacted. And, you know, it's been really interesting to figure mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Well, the book, I think, is quite a gift to the people of this area or the people that love this area and love the parkway. I was up on the parkway. I, I was at a workshop, an art workshop in West Jefferson the past couple of days. And so last night on the way home, had your book had my friends. We went up kind of in the Boone area um, to Grandfather Mountain and found some of your documented rest stops and had the book. And we we must have been there on a good day, too, yeah, yeah. to be able to see. We could mm-hmm. pick out every single one that you had picked out. And it was wonderful. And now I'm really looking forward to taking that book, like you said, right. to the area here that I am more familiar with and yeah. orienting myself. Yeah, we've been fortunate this last week. It's very rare that we get as many clear days as mm-hmm. we've had this time of year. But you get a cold front come through, uh, it'll clear the air out and you'll get that. Uh, some One year in August when I was working on the project, I never thought I could do anything in August. But it was about three days, but it's just crystal, you know. Mm-hmm. And I could have done a lot more, except at that time, yeah, that year, the road to Craggy Gardens had washed out. Out, and so you could not get to Craggy Gardens or Mount Mitchell or anything on the parkway. So I couldn't. You missed out. Yeah, on those I couldn't days. do anything there yeah. for a year. You know. Yeah. So yeah, but yeah, I think uh, you know it just turned out that I, I, you just never know. It could have flopped, or it could have, or people could find it of interest. You know. Uh, so I tried to. I get through. It's an evolution process when you work on any of these things. The more people you share it with and, and hear what they say. Then you kind of going, okay, well, there's where I'm weak, or that's what people are not understanding that I should probably explain a little better, or things like that. So get your feedback. Yeah, so yeah. I think that's very important, and and uh, you know, try not to be overly technical about including too much numbers and and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff because most people don't really care. Just enough. It was yeah. really nice to know, like, okay, that's Statesville direction, right. and orienting myself to where I was. Good. Really cool. And I was going to ask you, because I noticed last night, a lot of the overlooks, the signs are missing in that area. Do you know anything about that? People steal them all the time. Is that it? Other times they are taken down for maintenance, but it's not uncommon. That's why I put milepost numbers on almost everything, and I have a little thing that I have to put in there saying it's not uncommon that there will not be an overlook name here. You know, it's... Mm. People steal them, you know, and talking to the Park Service people, they, they will say sometimes they take them down for maintenance, but I, pretty much it's unfortunate that. Yeah. 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 Okay. And the other thing that made me curious when I got a hold of this book is I wondered if people, are you having the experience of people giving you ideas like, oh, you should document the mountains from the top of this building or this building? Are you uh, hearing things like that? Not so much, I guess, because I've found probably been on the front end of the curve of doing that but i but the exception would be my assistant scott came in one day and said um 
there's this really great view and I don't really know what you're seeing, but you can see this building way back up in the north and I think it's Sugar Mountain and, you know, he was describing it was from Tryon Peak down here up on 26, which is, you know, down and getting toward the flatlands there. As you come out of the mountains, I was going, well, it just doesn't make sense. It could be anything all that interesting there. And he goes, Bob, but it's great. And he showed me, he taken a couple of pictures of it. I'm looking at it. And so I went down there one day when I was just happened to be coming up 26. I went up to the top of the mountain there and there's this rock and you're looking out over this. Basically, it would be a four page view if I did it in the book. You're seeing all the way to Grandfather Mountain up here mm-hmm. and the shine, and the Linville Gorge and you can see Beach Mountain and Sugar Mountain and there's Lake Lure down here in the foreground and there's Rumbling Ball going up to Little Pisgah and then there's the Couch Mountain and all the stuff in South Asheville and then there's the Shining Rock Ledge and Mount Pisgah and on the radio tower in Brevard. So you're seeing everything from Brevard to basically up to Boone, toward Boone in mm-hmm. this sweep. I wow. mean, it's just stunning. Wow. And I would have never thought, um, you know, that you there would be a view like that outside the area that I had been in. Uh-huh. So. That sounds like a great one. Yeah. And I had a view of Max Patch, a six-page panorama that was going to include in the Parkway book, but I just ran out of pages because in doing these books, you have to do signatures of 16 pages. So they print 16 pages on one piece of paper. So when you go up or down, you need to go up in, in values of 16 pages, you know. So I kind of got stuck in between, and I thought, well, I better, you know, save money since I'm self-publishing, you know, I've got all this stuff already. I'll just wait and put that in with the Smokies book because there won't be as many views in that. So I was glad to be able to include that in, in the mm-hmm. other books. Yeah, so there, there are the views book. like that that, you know, are not technically on the parkway or, or in the Smokies, but are still just wonderful places. The reason I came up with the question, I happened to find myself in Asheville two different occasions in the past few weeks in buildings I had not been in. The new AB Tech building, mm-hmm. which has amazing views, and some of the higher floors of the Flatiron building. Mm-hmm. And I thought... I wonder what's out there. You know, maybe I'll ask Tim to go figure it out. And then right. I thought, leave Tim alone. People are probably asking him <laughs> well, all the time. Well, there's one view in the Parkway book that is from St. Joseph Hospital oh, area. And okay. it would show you part of that range. And okay. that was one of the more interesting ones because I had no idea that I actually could see all the way to Water Rock Knob from Asheville. I mean, it just made no sense that you were seeing that until I got to thinking about it. And I kept trying to find something to explain what those mountains were that was not that far away. And I would look, and there's just nothing in between. I would go through, look at the maps, and there's just nothing of any elevation in that gap there where 40 goes through. And so I would look at Thompson Knob coming back and where 40 goes through in that gap, and I'm like looking through that gap thinking, what is it? You know. And finally, when I just looked way on out there, there's Water Rock Knob and, and Mount Lynn Lowry and, uh, you know, uh, I got to look at the profile and son of a gun, if that wasn't it. Man, yeah. I was like, I, that's I'll amazing. i ch- check that out yeah. in the book. That's cool. Yeah, yeah look at that. Thanks. Yeah. Okay, so do you want to say any more about the new, but the Great Smokies book? Well, the Great Smoky Mountains uh, Vista's book is um, kind of a companion to the Parkway book, but it just ge- different geographically. It has the same mountain peak component that the Parkway book has, but as there's not as many views along 441 and in and around the park, I chose to do more aerial views in this case. I have aerial views uh, over Gatlinburg, Cherokee, Cates Cove, Fontana Dam, Catalucci Valley, and Max Patch. 
um, and then ground-based views across 441 from the Foothills Parkway all around the park looking back at it from the Blue Ridge Parkway looking back at the Smokies, areas like that. Um, but then I spent a lot more time writing articles about the park and its surroundings because I've always you know, spent my vacations close to home in many cases like that. Um, and so I, it's much easier to go to Smoke Mon and Camp or Elk Mon or Cades Cove we've gone to for Memorial Day for almost 35 years now um well over 35 years actually so i've got all that experience so i felt comfortable riding a survey of the campgrounds in the park you know i've stayed at them all what the good and the bad and you know where you if you got an rv maybe you go to these two if you're you know, tent camping you want to get away from everybody here's where you could go and uh, if you want to do horseback riding here's the different stables if you want to have a picnic here's where the, the picnic grounds are and what they have it offer and when they're open and um, then with Cadalucci Valley, kind of the same thing, shooting pictures that give the history of it and what the structures are there, and then little Cadalucci where you can go that you can walk into and, and what's in that valley. And so just a lot of us was from personal experience, and then I would go back to areas that are not as visited, like Greenbrier, and then try to do things there. So uh, adding those other components to it, I don't want to do the same thing over again. You know, I mean, I think having the Mount Peak component is really a, a good sales point and, and people really enjoy that. But I wanted to kind of go beyond that and make this a little different and mm-hmm. make it, you know, kind of a general guidebook as well. Mm-hmm. So it's about 50 pages longer. So it has a lot more information like that in it as well. And this one will be out in September. When? September? Yeah. yeah, I'll have advanced copies July 9th, and then the bulk of the stuff will be here August the 26th, supposedly. So, okay, yeah, so stay tuned. Right. Yeah, <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, what if we turn our attention to reasons people might hire you? What okay. do people hire you for? As a commercial photographer, basically I do everything but weddings. Um, as a wedding photographer, you have to work weekends every weekend, and you have about five months out of the year that you create income. And with my wife working Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, uh, it didn't make sense to be working every weekend. So, And I don't enjoy weddings that much anyway, to be honest. I got tired of doing them pretty pretty often, uh, pretty early on. So I started doing art and craft work on the side, photographing people's art and craft work, because it's always been a, a strong component of the actual community and I enjoyed the people I enjoyed the products when I worked in other studios um, I would photograph for instance there used to be a um, company called Sky City which was like Kmart we had it was based in Asheville and they had a, uh, these tabs they call them that come out with your little newspaper supplements that have the ads every Sunday and those are we would do these tabs that would come out of the paper for their products and it would be babies and swings and deodorant cans and BB guns and laundry soap and all that kind of stuff and it's very mundane subject matter but you had to be able to do it very quickly and efficiently and it was all shot to size which means you had to shoot large format cameras so if the picture is going to be five by seven on the page before digital you had to shoot that picture five by seven you know, so it had to be on five by seven sheet of film. So here I'm shooting an eight by ten camera on something as mundane as you know a detergent bottle or something. Right. But so you got the skill level, but the subject matter was really lacking. And uh, the nice thing, and the guy that hired me enjoyed about it, was they would back up with a truck with all these products, and he'd close the door and never have to deal with people, and you sit and shoot this stuff all day and go home. But I thought, well, there ought to be something more intrinsically beautiful to photograph with the skill set than, than the products I'm doing now. So that turned out to be art and craft work. And I always thought it would just be a kind of a sideline thing, you know, something I would do, bring extra income. And I enjoyed the people, and I always gave them a discount over my regular raid and stuff. 
And over the years, because of the growth in the actual arts community and because I've concentrated on that a lot, it's become probably half my business or more is that one type of thing. I also do a lot of business portraits. I do a lot of editorial work uh, for magazines and uh, a lot of travel and tourism accounts. Uh, so the brochures that you see on the racks in the um, hotel lobbies and stuff of all the area attractions, I photograph a lot of that type of stuff. Um, so it's, uh, and over the years I worked for a lot of the major attractions like Biltmore State and Chimney Rock Park and, and those kinds of things. So, uh, more what's considered commercial photography is advertising type of things. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, business and family portraits to some extent as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's kind of the component of what people hire me for today is, uh, is to illustrate articles, um, uh, to, photograph their art and craft work so they can get in a juried show. Um, and that's important because, you know, almost everything's juried now. I remember when I first started photographing crafts, I never did glass. I never got calls to do glass. And after a while, I finally asked one of my glass artist friends, I said, why don't nobody ever call me to photograph glass? He goes, no, we don't have to submit slides. We're automatically in the shows. Now, this oh. has changed today, <laughs> but years ago... There were so few people doing glass mm. that they were automatically in. So let's say a show like John Cram's show in August down here at All Souls he does every year, you've got 100 slots. Well, they're not going to be 100 ceramic artists. You know, he's going to break it up, and any promoter is going to break it up into a certain percentage of jewelry, a per- certain percentage of flat art, a certain percentage of, of ceramics, all those types of things. So you're vying for those spots. You know, and not even a hundred spots. You may be vying for ten spots, you mm-hmm. know, in that right. show. Right. So to try to get your work to rise to that level, you know, professional photography is real critical for that. Because at a certain point, if your work is of a certain caliber, that may be the determining factor whether you get in a show or not. And not getting in a show can really cost you a lot of money. And that's what a lot of the professional artists have realized is, you know, they try it for a while shooting themselves or, or whatever, you know. But a lot of them come back because they just realize from an economic standpoint, if it's the difference of getting in a show or not, especially a wholesale show where you're, you know, can get half of your income coming in. You don't get in a four-day Baltimore wholesale show because your photographs are weak. That's going to cost you. So for an artist to hire you to shoot their work is really an investment in their career. It is. And the ones that that really hire me the most often are the ones that are prominent in their field. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't, not that I'm contributing to that. I think it's just having good photography and that attention to detail and that willingness to invest in their career and and make that decision, you know, helps. And uh, I photograph for a lot of novice artists who are trying to get into the Southern Highland Guild, for instance, or whatever. And they, you know, I do a lot of those every six months. There'll be a new crew of people come through that are trying to get into some kind of jury show like that. And when you're up against that kind of competition and, and those few entries that are available each, each six months, you know, it can make a huge difference in your income in getting in a guild like that mm-hmm. or getting in a major show or something. Mm-hmm. The know. photography gives them an edge. Yeah, and used to, there was so little competition all around in the arts that you could get away with shooting your own work. You could put up a sheet in your basement and, and set something in front of it, and, and that was a given. You know, the people would just overlook that. Now it's cutthroat. You know, any excuse, when you got hundreds of applicants for a few spots, any excuse to throw your work out of the jury pool, 
they'll take it. Mm-hmm. You know, right. It's, it's going to get honed down uh, right. pretty quickly. And are there other reasons an artist would hire you to shoot their work? Do they do prints from your photos? They do portfolios. Some of the smarter ones will actually submit magazine articles pre-done. They will have someone write the article. They'll have their work photographed. And magazines love that. People don't realize that, but they're always, they've got to come up with something every month. You think it's hard to get in a magazine. Sometimes it is, but they're looking for content. And in today's world, if you can provide them with content ready to go, oh. an article that's written, photographs that are done, they got it all right there in their hand, all I have to do is publish it, that's a big jump up. That is a great tip for the artists who will be listening right. to your interview. And there's people like Matt Jones that I work for that, that do that, and they're real savvy about that. Mm-hmm. And it just makes perfect sense when you think about it to, to be doing that. So do you know what some of the articles have appeared in, what magazines that I've you've shot for? i worked for every publication of arts and crafts that there is out there. I've had work published in most of them, on the covers of a lot of them, Ceramics Monthly, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, um so there's just a lot of publications out there for every field, even the woodworking field. You know, there's, I, don't, I couldn't name the specific ones, but there's probably a modern woodworker and a, a traditional woodworker. And, you know, there's, there's this niches of magazines. You think the publishing industry's in trouble in some sense, but you go to a newsstand and look at the volume of magazines mm-hmm. that's out there, and that's just the mainstream ones that you'll see, you know, for every industry. I don't care what, it, the funeral industry. I've been in magazines, strangely enough, for funeral homes that, that, you know, it's just amazing. But there's like two or three, not just one. There's two or three in that industry. Right. <laughs> so if you, what you've got to do is you learn the markets that are out there and you, you work to those, you know. Now, the downside to that is, is sometimes you're only showing work to other people in your field, you know, and, and you, the smarter people will really try to get into a more general magazine. I think Dale Chihuly, the glass artist, he had articles in, you know, he, everybody else was trying to get in glass magazines. He was going after Playboy and, you know, all these big magazines, national magazines to run stuff. And that really paid off. He got you more know, exposure. Got national exposure for your yeah. work. So I think, you know, there, you start with your, your field and you want to be known and admired by other people who do what you do. I think that's just natural. Mm-hmm. But also, you're, and, and, and there's collectors that read those magazines, and that's who you're really trying to gear yourself to. You're trying to find collectors who are going to come to shows and recognize your work and your name, whether they put it together with where they saw it or not. You're trying to create that name recognition so that when they come to your booth, they'll go, oh, I've heard of you, or I've seen your work. They may not be able to tell you where, but that's the effect that you want. The credibility yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, some cases when uh, you'll have like the Mint Museum show in Charlotte was largely ceramics. I mean, it's a huge deal now. There's collectors that line up, you know, hours in advance and come to pre-shows and all that sort of stuff to try to get to these people's work. Wow. Uh, because they've created a reputation where they have a collector base that's waiting on them. And that's that's a luxury. That's mm-hmm. something that really takes a lot of effort and a lot of time. But if you do it right... You know, you've got this collector base, and it doesn't have to be huge. You know, if you can find five or ten people that love your work and buy it every time they see it, you can make an okay living. Mm-hmm. Right, right. You know. So, for the artists who may be listening to your words of wisdom here, are you still accepting more artists? And how long does it take to get in? How long ahead should they plan? Well, I try to keep my my schedule really flexible because the thing about 
a lot of especially the art and craft world, but also in the editorial world, it's a very short turnaround. From the time someone kiln firing turns out successful to the time they have to pack up and go to a show, maybe a day or two. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always willing for people to call me and say, can you work me in? And especially if it's an established client, I'll do everything I can to work them in. If it comes in on a weekend or work later and whatever I have to do. You know, I try to schedule it during work hours, but, you know, I'll also... Um, you know, I have people call me wanting me to shoot next week when I'm going to be on vacation. So I've got to work them in tomorrow and, and, and it's going to make really long days before I get gone. But I want to take care of them because I'm, I want to keep them as clients. But also they've got deadlines. They've got show applications that they got to have. And, you know, they need good quality work and they mm-hmm. depend on me for that. So I want to reciprocate by, you know, doing that. So, yeah, I, I still do do take clients in. And, um, you know, uh, I... As far as turnaround time, you know, the more lead time, a week or two, they can give me uh, the better. But uh, and I'll have people sometimes. I have certain clients that schedule me six months in advance because they know they're going to the furniture show in October, and so the week before they're going to have their product line ready, and they want to make sure that I'm available that week. And you know, I'll schedule vacations around that. Going, okay, if you tell me you're nice. you need me that week, then I'll go nice. the week before because it doesn't really matter, you know, that yeah. far in advance. So if the artist is that organized right. in the first place, normally they're not. Yeah, <laughs> and so I've gotten used to that and and things get moved around you'll have a cancellation because the firing turned out poorly or they broke a piece. i had a lady the other day call me in tears because she spent a month on a piece and cracked it at the last minute and she had uh. to deliver it you know so she's either gonna have to uh. i mean so it's just heartbreaking when something like that happens you yeah. know so but fortunately that's not often the case it's it's you know more predictable than that but but i am used to people kind of calling uh and, and i do try to work them in as mm-hmm. much as I can. Well, I really appreciate hearing that and that yeah. you understand what the life of an artist can be. You, right. You can be, like, framing paintings the night right. before, and it's well, not a good feeling. I but. can't tell you for how many years someone has left my studio and loaded their car and driven to the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am the last stop, mm-hmm. you know, in some cases. Uh, I remember years ago I was photographing for a glass artist uh, from the western part of the state, and he was going to the one of the Rosen shows, I think, in Baltimore, he was supposed to come before he left and was not able to, didn't get packed in time. And he got up there and they had this huge snowstorm. And so they were finding people $75 for even being out on the road. So the only people were there were people from out of town that came to, to do the show. And so mm-hmm. they, for four days it was a bust. So he came on his way home. We photographed everything and then we made prints of everything. And he had to mail it to all of the galleries that he missed you know, the, and the, the mm-hmm. people that would come as buyers from these galleries because that was, you know, 40, 50% of his yearly sales came from that one show. Yeah. He needed to be involved in that one. Right. Yeah. yeah. So there you're able to really help somebody out, and, and that's a good feeling. You feel like, you know, you even in a tough circumstance, they were able to come up with another solution. Okay, here's what we can do. We'll mail this to your, you can mail this, this package of prints to your client base and they can see the new work. They know the quality of the work from previous years. They just need to know the new styles that you've got and the sizes and the colors or whatever it happens to be of your range of work for this year. Mm-hmm. It's quite the service and I think that the artists in this area are very fortunate to have you to provide uh, that. The other thing that I do that's very different from most studios is that I want people here when I'm photographing the work. You know, most studios, at least traditionally, they would never allow that. I was one of the first studios years ago that would encourage people to come and be here while I photographed. Because, uh, you know, artists are very particular people. They're, they see facets of the work they want to show, others they want to hide. I don't know that. 
you know, I can learn that over a period of time of working with an artist, and that's the advantage to having those kind of long-term relationships is I start seeing the work the way they see the work because I see how they turn it and the facets they want to show and the things they think important. We'll discuss that, and, and I'll tell them photographically what's a better angle, what's a stronger pattern that might show up, you know, and give my input. And, and then um, I think a lot of them value that because photographically I know what's going to... Uh, show up best or, or photograph best. It's like with people, we used to have models come in for our fashion workshops and you would not even pick them off the street as a model when they come in the day before. But by the time the stylist got together, they were great. You know, other people, sometimes the best looking people, they don't photograph that great. Other ordinary people photograph terrifically and then products and things that you make are exactly the same way. You know, you, So you like it to be a collaboration with the artist? Very much so because the more eyes you have and the more brains you have working on that at the same time the better every you know your product you're going to have and the more happy people are going to be because i don't want somebody to come back in i mean if they have to drop the work off um like especially paintings there's not a whole lot there to to do you know you hang it on the it's wall and light it correctly and yeah. you know there's there's only one position you can be in yeah but three-dimensional objects or anything like that jewelry uh ceramic artists furniture especially all those kinds of things it's a very much of an interactive kind of uh, back and forth about well why don't we turn it a little bit more so that back leg doesn't line up with this from the point of view of the camera and you know there's a lot of things like that that just makes the lines cleaner and makes it more effective photograph and they're looking at it from one standpoint and i'm looking at it from another standpoint so it's the collaboration between those two views mm -hmm. we end up with a really great photograph that shows the facets they're interested in but does it in an effective way photographically mm -hmm. And it kind of reminds me of what you said about your book, how, you know, you mentioned the word control, but your book is part of your art, and you put it together in the order you wanted and presented it the way you wanted, and so it makes sense, really, for the artist to be involved in the photographing of their work. It's it's part of the art is to display it and display it in the and best I find way. that people are much happier with the end product because mm -hmm. they've participated they've had choices they've made they they've looked at it from different angles and one of the thing about digital is I can shoot four or five shots of something and then we can just keep the best one when we like this it's real easy to shoot some alternatives unlike slide film where you can choose to later you had to shoot all your options now right. now you just shoot it look at it spend it a little bit, come up, come down, try a different something, and look at the four or five shots and go, okay, I want to keep these two out of these, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's a... It, Quite the benefit. Yeah. yeah. It really makes it better for everybody. You know, they're happy, which makes makes it good for me because they leave here knowing what they've got. You know, we review the images, and, and when they leave, they know we got it in the can and, you know, what we've got, and they're happy with it. If they don't, we reshoot it or set it back up or say okay well since we did this one this way let's go back and do this other one this way because it's going to be the same application or the same portfolio mm -hmm. or whatever mm -hmm. like that so yeah it does offer a lot of um, a lot yeah. of possibilities you don't have if it's just a drop and run kind of situation right yeah. right well tim we have covered everything i thought of ahead of time but yeah. is there anything that i haven't covered that you would like to mention um I don't know. I think we've done a pretty good job. Um, yeah. Okay. I really appreciate it. And there will be links to Tim's site on the podcast page and any resources he has mentioned, um, examples of his work. 
And, well, is your website the best way for people to contact you? It is. Uh, they can contact me through the website at barnwellphoto.com, or they can email me at barnwellphoto at hotmail.com, or call me on the phone. Uh, most people email anymore, but I'm willing to, mm-hmm. you know, I'm old school, so I'll do whatever they want to do. Um, and just, yeah. Okay. Very good. There are, there are, we have a pretty exhaustive web page. It does have all the different categories. If you're looking for craft photography, it shows you all the range of craft photography I, I do. If you're looking for the books, there's inf- pages on each of the five different books, and there'll be another one on the um, Great Smoky Mountains book that'll be posted shortly. And then there's portrait samples, and there's plenty of good samples there, a lot of fun mm-hmm. things. And then there's just some fun stuff, just some interesting projects I'm working on and some images from that, so that's something to fun to look at. So just check back once in a while. There'll be new material up. Great. And um, do you have a Facebook fan page, too? Yes. Uh, Facebook's just Bar- Tim Barnwell Photography. Okay. And uh, also the Blue Ridge Parkway Vistas. Uh, is uh, there's a Google page and uh, Google Plus page and Facebook and, and all that for Great. that project as well. And we will continue to keep people updated on your projects and as you have things that you would like to have promoted. Good. Let me know. Okay. Thank you again well, very thank much. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Great. Check out the show notes at localhearted.com slash Tim Barnwell for links to Tim's sites and examples of his work. Tim has a very extensive website, as he mentioned during the interview, and one of the sections he always keeps updated with his upcoming events. And if you look at it, there are many upcoming events, and I want to mention some of them. And please remember, we are in the year 2016, as are these events. On Sunday, November 20th, he will be at the New Morning Gallery in Asheville, North Carolina, from 12 to 5 p.m. On December 3rd, he will be at the Folk Art Center on the Blue Ridge Parkway in Asheville from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Also on December 3rd, 2016, he will be back at the New Morning Gallery in Biltmore Village in Asheville from 2 to 5 p.m. On December 4th, he will be at the Southern Highland Craft Guild Shop in Biltmore Village in Asheville from 1 to 4 p.m. If you are in the Piedmont area of North Carolina, there are several upcoming events listed in November on Tim's website, so I would encourage you to check those out. Tim conducts several workshops during the year, a couple of which I have attended that are highly beneficial to artists, and I will announce them when I have future dates. And for those of you who are listening, who are in the business of art and fine handcrafts, I highly encourage you to check out Tim's site and see the amazing photos he has taken of other people's art. You can find these photos under the commercial and advertising section of his site. Thank you again for listening. This is Meredith Adler for the Local Hearted Podcast. And the podcast theme music, Learning to Fly, is courtesy of and copyrighted by Jamie Noter Thomas. (laughs) 